0: Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us raise their fame and throw off their shackles." The one who found in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break down with a rod of iron. You will dust down to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you say, be wise, be wise, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can stir up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank
1: you that we can look at these words before our eyes and see uh, things that are, are extraordinary in the way in which you have uh, established things, the way that you have entered into the world, and the way in which you have ordained uh, things for the future. Father, so please guide us now as we look at this uh, piece of scripture. May your spirit work in us and challenge and encourage us and make us wise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what do you think? uh, What do you think singing in church is all about? It's a bit of an unusual activity, isn't it? You know, sometimes a little awkward. But every, but every single Sunday, just about every single church in the world, Christians sing together. Other religions don't really do it. You know, people might chant, or they might have instrumental background music. But this idea of us all standing together and singing these words on the screen, and usually there's you know some encouraging background music to try and help us along, and we drew this all together, and that's a pretty Christian thing to do. Do you enjoy singing in church? Great, so I can sit down. That's fine. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, maybe I'll sit down. We didn't get the to sound too. That was a that was a key point I had to cover. I guess people, uh, you know, they go to the city and you know, they've got a favourite team and they'll, they'll sing on their favourite team. But, you know, maybe rowdy people will get to the pub or something and they'll try and show off, uh, and so they'll sing. You know, people sometimes sing to entertain us, people have a whole career around that, or to demonstrate their skill. Uh, but those are very different things from what we do when we sing together. So what do you think singing in church is all about? Well, because I'm a music director, I think about these things quite a bit, I guess. After all, you know, I'm planning the singing, I'm organising, I'm going rehearsals, leading the singing, that's what my job is mostly about. Um, but I'm, this morning I'm not going to do the standard thing that I often do, which is to look at some of the like New Testament passages I'm singing. Um, instead, we get the opportunity to look at the psalm together, and this is something that Duncan and I talked about some time ago as a good way to address this issue, because the psalms were the corporate song for the people of God in the Old Testament. But before we get to that psalm, I do want to talk a little bit about my own insecurities. Because singing in church hasn't always come naturally for me. Uh, in fact, you know, the idea of singing where other people might be able to actually hear my singing voice, you know, that used to be the equivalent of having the teeth pulled out. Occasionally I used to get asked to um, to play background piano music, um, you know, in restaurants or dinners. I was fine with that, you know, piano, no problem. But I do remember one time being asked to sing as well as play. Oh, great, yeah, sure, that sounds okay. So I set up a mic, and yes, technically the mic was plugged into the little amplifier that I brought along. And theoretically, um, I was singing the song for that big dinner that my church had put on. But I have have a confession to make. Uh, It is possible that the amp wasn't actually turned on. And it's surprising how unusually loud my piano playing was on that evening. I was happy to sing, but I didn't want anyone to actually hear my voice. Are you feeling my pain. Good. thank you. I feel a little better now. You know, we do feel awkward about people hearing our singing voice, and yet that's what we do here in church. And what's more, we ask our visitors to do it too. You know, welcome along to your therapy session where we'll help you face your deepest fears head on and in front of a crowd. Yeah, when I first went into music ministry vocationally, I had got over some of the worst of these fears. But I knew that I wasn't doing much of a music director. It was, I wasn't able to sort of move beyond the, the, the technical stuff, you know, being up the front and making sure that we're singing the right song and that we're in the right key and we all start together, all that technical stuff. I knew that I would have to move beyond that to, be, to something else. And that something else was the praise side of it. I knew I needed to become a praise leader. and It didn't come naturally to me at all. And, you know, the more I thought about it, genuine praise in singing requires genuine volume, and genuine volume requires genuine courage. You know, our singing has got actually very little to do with music. You don't need to know anything about semi boots or key signatures, or rhythm patterns. And, okay, maybe you'll be looking, I never said this, but you don't even need to be able to sing in tune, okay? Others around you might wish you could sing in tune, but, you know, if you get those funny looks from someone, just try and catch their eye, give them a wink, you know, point to the heavens and say, praise the Lord! In terms of being courageous for the gospel, we often talk about our per- personal witness, don't we? You know, if you had that evangelistic conversation with a friend or family person or if you'd be interested in doing some um, some of that really fun stuff, you know, door knocking or um, going and saying, you know, walking up to people in the shopping centre, you know, you, you realise that our faith isn't about creating pain for ourselves. It isn't about becoming the toughest or most impressive person in church. It's not about fulfilling Duncan's vision for your life. And it's not about being a nuisance in the community. Nevertheless, it does involve proclamation. The Bible itself is constantly proclaiming the glorious God. God wants us to get on board with his idea of proclaiming the good news. And perhaps this is nowhere clearer than in the Psalms. They are themselves these little messages of proclamation from beginning to end. Even the lament in the Psalms are still proclamations of how glorious God is. the the life that, I gather you look at Psalm 1 and this, the life that is made possible by seeking God in his word. The life in him, this beautiful life that he portrays for us in the Bible. And this is, we said to Psalm 2, and the life that is made possible by God's work. God's work in establishing his Son, his Messiah, as King over all other things, as Governor, Over all government. So it sounds a bit political. Do you enjoy politics? I see some heads shaking quite vigorously out there. Do you like hearing politicians in the media? Do you love a good election? More shaking heads. You know, elections do dominate our news, don't they, when they're on. And we are actually dealing with a lot of cynicism at the moment, aren't we? You know, the so-called protest vote is bigger than ever. You know, we don't—we often find it very hard to believe in our politicians. You know, we, we'll, we'll often pick one politician or group of politicians as being slightly less bad than the other politicians. And, you know, say so we'll vote for them. But even swimming votes are higher now than they've been, well, ever in the history, I believe. Well, in Psalm 2, politics is brewing away to worse times because there is a conspiracy being planned. I'm glad you'll open up Psalm 2 in your Bibles in front of you because we're going to work through it um, now. Just have a look at what's going on here and then think about its implications. So in these first verses, a leader is about to be coupled. Well, that sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? In nine years, he's had five changes of prime minister. A key is almost commonplace. Let's read it. It's in verse 1, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers bound together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. Well, the challenge is laid down. This is not just colleagues against one another. This is nations, peoples, kings and rulers all against one man. It's extraordinary that there could be such wholehearted and widespread revolt. Why? Who is it that they want to topple? Well, it's the king of Israel. That is, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's king, the king over the Lord's nation. And so, of course, this is not merely a political assault, but it is also a theological assault. They are banding together against God and against his man. Why? And that's the big question. Why would... Why? It's actually the very question the Psalmist. It's the first word in the psalm. Why? It's astonishing to think about that people could hate God and hate God's established king. It's outrageous. and surely it's in vain. Sure enough, God does have a response to this. Have a look in verse 4 and following. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord stops at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So if the first three verses were about the challenge being laid down. These next three verses are about the challenge being refuted. But perhaps it's a surprise as you read this, if you never read this before, God just out laughing. What a it is actually astonishing. What's going on here? The whole world is revolting. It's outrageous it's, and it's in vain. But did you notice, know as, as he read it, that the Lord's response evolves. So what starts with laughter turns to stopping. I and mean, then stopping turns to rebuke and anger. And then rebuke turns to terrifying them in his wrath. How dare you? He's taking this seriously. I sure Kevin and Julia and Tony, you know, said something along the lines of, how dare you? And they were facing their uprisings. But there's something different about this. It's the one enthroned in heaven who reacts. The one with untouchable power. At Trinity City we've been recently studying the book of Daniel. And you remember, um, if you know the book, when King Nebuchadnezzar, King the mighty conquering ruler um, based in Babylon, he throws these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a fiery furnace for not bowing down to his statue. And this is effectively a mutiny by these three guys, although this unwillingness to bow down his not quite the same as an attempt to overthrow him, but it's effectively saying the same thing. What's the response of the king in Babylon? The one enthroned in Babylon pours out his wrath onto these rebels. But then, the one enthroned in heaven rescues them. Not a hair is even though the soldiers who threw them into the furnace were themselves burned up. So who wins? The one enthroned in Babylon? Or the one enthroned in heaven. Well, back to Psalm two, and in God's angry, terrifying wrath, what does he say? There are quotation marks in my translation. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He's talking about Jerusalem, of course. Elsewhere in the psalm, Psalm forty-six, there's this wonderful description of Zion, the the mountain of the Lord, the city of the Lord. There is a river, in Philippians Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice the earth melts the Lord Almighty is with us the God of David is our fortress we so notice that the city of God is not just a place for God's name to be exalted or, although it is that. it's also the place for the provision for God's people and the protection of God's people it's the place for us that safe place, that place, place is God's prayer over when nations rise up the Lord speaks and the earth melts. He is the Lord Almighty, and no nation or power can survive against him. Okay, we've heard about the challenge laid down. We've heard about the challenge refused. Now we see the champion unveiled. Verses 7 and 12. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. You notice that we're not
0: simply
1: worshipping the invisible God. Here we need a very visible human representative of God. But that's the moment. Do you ever wish that Christianity wasn't, say, invisible? You know, of course it's about believing in God, but sometimes it that makes it hard when we can't see him. And yet the champion here is a human being. This king, he is an earthly king is established by his role, established in his role by the decree of God. He is very much touchable, visible, audible with ordinary human senses. Now, okay, think about the context in which this psalm um, comes. So, it's before Jesus Christ. Right? You, you might have read these words and said, oh yeah, you yeah, Jesus. But think about these before Jesus Christ. And even what it says before Jesus Christ about the anointed king of Israel is amazing. I mean, the king here is referred to as a son of God. You know, maybe the psalm was used at coronation ceremonies, you know, and on on the coronation day, God would become, uh, I guess, called the father of the one who is being anointed. what an extraordinary honour for the earthly king. It's also amazing that this king here is invited to ask God for blessing. Ask me, says the Lord. And it's also amazing that God promises the king the nations as an inheritance, the ends of the earth, that is the whole world as his possession, and military power over anyone who rises up in rebellion. What extraordinary things God is saying here to this anointed king. But of course, we read it on the other side of Jesus. And we know that the fulfilment of this is even more extraordinary again. So as we read it, we can see that it is not just referring to the royals of Israel, but to Jesus, was born as a descendant of the kings of Israel. You know, when it comes to Christmas time, that's often one of the things that is, is repeated, you know, of the line of David. He's a real royal. He's a valid heir, humanly speaking. And you know, he was anointed too, a different kind of anointing. Remember, Jesus' baptism, you know these passages. Jesus is baptized at the very beginning of his ministry. Yes, he's baptized with water. But it also talks about the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. Not anointed with oil, but anointed with the spirit, looking like a dove. Jesus' baptism is like his coronation. This is where he's anointed as God's king, God's champion. And of course there were words that were said to have been heard from the heavens on that day. What were the words? You are my beloved son. You know, none of these kings of Israel had actually fulfilled their role as God's King. You know, there were a few of them that showed sporadic faithfulness throughout history, but even the faithful ones were deeply flawed. You think of David and his friends, and he's the the one held up as the great, you know, the great King of Israel. Israel had languished because of the failure of their King, their failure to actually fulfill the role of a King that's felt out here in that and so, you know, so for readers around, you know, around Jesus' time, you know, reading this psalm, it might have felt like salt in the wound. You know, all this victory. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, what hope would Israel have at this time of the, of the, you know, against the enemies of God? I mean, Rome ruled in Jesus' time. Caesar was the king, not God's anointed of one. And before him the Greeks and the Medes and Persians and the Babylonians, you know, and until the day of that baptism, too, it's just a obscure history. Don't know what to make of it. But now it has come alive as the eternal prophecy that it was always intended to be. Imagine the small number of faithful ones here were there at baptism, and they heard these words in the sky: "You are my son." Is this is the king. This the foundation. Maybe God is on the move. Well, the challenge is laid down in the first three verses. The challenge is refuted in the next three verses. The champion is revealed in the following three verses, and now in the final three verses, the challengers are warned. The king, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned. You rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his will with thunder and kick his son, or he'll be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction. For so his wrath can flare up in a moment. Yes, I'll always take refuge in him. That's not the picture we normally think of when we think about Jesus. Anger, uh, wrath flourishing up in a minute, you know, coming before him with fear and thunder. Is it the same Jesus? Not our normal script for sharing the gospel, is it? Be wise, people. Be warned. You know, you make people very angry if you take this approach to sharing the gospel. And Jesus did not talk like that, would he? Actually, he does. Let's quote from Luke 12, verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth, from Jesus' lips. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. Another baptism. I wonder what the next baptism is that he's referring to. And what constraint I am under until it is completed. Maybe he's got the vision of trying through in his head as he speaks. Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but the vision. From now on, there'll be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They'll be divided. Five against one. And father and son. What do we make of this? How do we reckon with this? You know, it probably makes our messages even slightly more uncomfortable than we thought. You know, warning people is awkward. It's not the kind of way that our know, society would say you can't, you try and encourage change in people. You know, I think this is difficult. Trying to work out how to put this in conversation, how to apply this in your um, friendship and um, family conversations and songs. But somehow, this has to be part of our message, because this is the gospel. And I'm not sure how to put it into our songs either. You know, there just aren't that many songs around that proclaim the glory of Christ's judgment. Our it's it's very, very hard. How do, you, how do you write a song to, to celebrate God's glory when it involves his wrath? And so I'm, I've got to apologize at this thing. I really want to change the song for later in the service. Because I wanted to put in a song. There aren't many, but I wanted to... And I'll, I'll sing it for you a little bit later. Um, a song which actually, in one sense, could praise the God of judgment. And um, it is an old hymn with a contented tune. But I um, you know, don't want to say more about it in a few minutes. But um, there are so few that somehow we to actually be able to articulate some of these characteristics kind of the gospel. But you mustn't be ashamed of it. You mustn't shy away from this, and you mustn't think that you can have the gospel without this, because you know that it actually fills our minds with awe and reverence for God and his man, Jesus. You know, we take him seriously if we know what he's capable of. You know, we're not following a weakling. Jesus is not a pushover. You see this picture in the Gospels, and most of the Gospels is dedicated to this picture of Jesus, the humble one who went to the cross in disgrace and humility. But this time is proclaiming the, the, the Christ after the resurrection. The man who rose from the dead. You know, Hebrews 7 puts it like this, that Jesus is able to represent us eternally because he has an indestructible life. Do you know any kings with an indestructible life? And throughout history, kings have, you know, Trying to hoodwink their people into thinking that they would be eternal. Have you got any mates or family members or um, neighbours with an indestructible life? <laughs> it was a real death that Jesus died. But as, as Peter says when he's speaking in his first sermon in, in Acts, he says it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why was it impossible? Is it because, you know, well, he didn't really die? No, he really died. Was it because he was God? Maybe. But the the point really here, the reason that death could not hold him is because of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 116. And Psalm 132 and other places like 2 Samuel 7. I know I'm spraying a whole lot of Bible verses out there, but there are lots of places where the glory of the eternal King was predicted. This is prophecy. This is God's word which had decreed it. God's Christ must reign forever. You have no friends more powerful. Than this thing. And no enemy is more powerful. No one can stand against him and prevail. So are you on his side? Because you know, this warning actually comes with warmth as well. You know, the kings and rulers are urged to kiss this thing, the idea of maybe embracing him. You know, come to him in submission and you will be safe. Because if there is nothing else in all creation that is more, sorry, okay, nothing else in all existence that is more dangerous than the sun whose wrath flares up in a moment, then it follows that there's nothing else in all existence that is more safe than being at his side. And so the psalm finishes with a simple nun. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He is a simultaneously and dangerous. And there's nothing that you can do, nothing more important that you can do for your own preservation than take refuge in him. Okay, things. What's this got to do with things? Well, these are words for proclamation yes you know there's a, of course they are also for evangelism and permission but they are also for worship one of those um, New Testament verses that describes the urge Christians to sing is Ephesians 5.19 and it speaks of making melodies to the Lord with your heart the heart is the deepest part of you the heart that loves and long, and singing the expression of those love and longing, so keep the sun, take refuge in the sun. Now those aren't silly things that you can do with your body. we see him with our eyes and then we can. but these are things that we do with our hearts we take refuge in the son with our hearts that is we love him and we long for him and of you don't need to actually sing a melody to express your love there are many other ways that we can do this and of course there have been many people who have sung loudly and proudly in churches over the years who have had no love for Jesus but it does work the other way. The heart that loves will sing. So the punchline is, let your singing be an expression of your love for him, of your longing for him, of your longing for Psalm truth to see its fulfilment before all. Because so that's the only thing that's left to be done, is for, is for the unveiling of the reality It's all—it's all real. It's already there. Christ is already enthroned at God's right hand. We just need Him to lift the veil, and the world will see it. Let's express our love for Him in our singing. Let's embrace Him with our singing. Let's take refuge in Him with our singing. Okay, a couple of pitfalls. It's easy to zone out sometimes, isn't it, in the singing? I've got two little put in through distractions that um you know that can easily help me to ground out when I'm seeing. But I have gotta keep remembering to kiss the sun. Oh well I can also get distracted with the muse over doing something poorly, you know somebody plays some wrong notes. We can all get distracted, oh something wrong down there, oh a bit out of tune, whatever. Those are distractions. Take refuge in Jesus as you think. That's what it's all about. And here's the big one. It's easy to get embarrassed about what the person next to us thinks about our voice. Never mind evangelism, letting people hear my singing voice. That's that's just whoa. That's off limits No, you're not off limit. Remember who it is you're worshipping. Serve the Lord, kiss the Son, take refuge in Him. Don't be ashamed of Him. Don't be embarrassed about singing His praise. Just belt it out. That's the song that we're going to finish this um, later is a song that I think probably most of you won't know. So in a sense, it's, it's a test for you. It gives you an opportunity to just belt out something you don't know. There's no, you've just got to throw yourself into it. I will teach you, do not I? But um, it's an encouragement. It's not actually about the volume of your singing, but volume often is indicative of, your, of what's going on in your heart. Well... It's not about the music, not about the musicians. it's about the praise. and In fact, it's not even about the worshipers, it's about the one who is being worshipped. So sing and make melody in the heart to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, please strengthen us, encourage us, focus our minds and our hearts. May we pour out our love, our dependence, our need before you, not only in our singing, but most definitely in our singing. Lord, may we be an encouragement to those around us, not because we sing a perfect tune, but because we sing from our hearts and because we show each other in the congregation that we believe in the truth of time too and if you have exalted your son, your Christ, in Zion, not the earthly Zion in Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem, the glory uh, that is Awaken us, my Father, we pray that you would do your work through our praise, that you would encourage us in our hearts, that you would encourage one another through each of our, each of our testimonies through singing, and also for those visitors who join us, that they would see
0: that in fact we really do believe in Jesus, and we say it in his name, amen.